Welcome to tomorrow's Tech Today, bringing you the latest in technology, talent, and transformational change. With me, your host, Professor Sally Eaves. I'm delighted today to welcome John Rose, who's Global Chief Technology Officer at Dell Technologies, to the show. We're going to be discussing the most recent study that was conducted by Dell Technologies and just released on April the 5th. That's called Breakthrough, Breaking Through Barriers to Digital Transformation and Right at the Intersection of People and Technology too. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Oh, no, great being here. It's uh, always good to have this kind of conversation, uh, you know, and, and especially on this topic because it's very timely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think everything around skills, as I know we'll come on to later on, resonating with so many people at the moment. And I was involved at an early stage with this research myself as well. So very close to heart. So I can't wait to dive into the details. So on that note, kind of let's set the stage about this new research. So 10,500 respondents um, and looking at the audience as well, C3, all the way through to employees across business functions, different industry sectors and over 40 countries too. It's really looking at people's capacity to embrace digital change. When analysing all the results, we found that people can be close to burnout and overwhelmed with lots of different factors coming together. If you've got data, that volume of data, the pace of change, new and complex technologies, all these kind of vectors all converging. We've all been through a lot, haven't we, over the last few years? Um, but like yourself, I always look on that positive side, you know, tech optimist, should we say. So I'd love to talk in more detail today about how, how tech can alleviate some of the pains that I've just already elucidated. And also looking at one particular element in the study. So there was a phrase here, data burden is real. People tend to carry on with what they know, even if it's a manual process, and even if that's making their life actually harder. So perhaps we could start first with the role of automation, that human tech partnership, if you will. Where are we right now? What burdens, what roadblocks do we need to overcome? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic because, you know, um, about... Oh boy! Now five years ago, I was over in Tokyo. Interestingly enough, and I, I was meeting with uh, kind of the head of autonomous driving and in connected vehicles for one of the big Japanese automobile companies, and we were we were talking about what it would take to build out the kind of infrastructure to support you know this aspiration and you know ten years of millions and tens of millions of fully autonomous vehicles. And so we you know we did the math and we went and looked and we realized that for that particular automotive supplier, the tier one OEM, we estimated that somewhere between one and six zettabytes of data would have to be under management for that to work because you know these are incredibly sensorized environments, there's digital twins, there's just a tremendous amount of things happening. And and so great, we now know kind of the size of the data set. And then we did some more math and we started to calculate how much storage would it take to actually manage, you know, a zettabyte? And it turns out that if you do the math, you know, and you look at something like, you know, Dell has a, uh, you know, uh, products in the scale out NAS space, we tend to be the market leaders in those space. And one of the things we look at is the amount of people to the petabytes of the device. You know, what is the ratio of how many administrators are needed for this chunk of data? And that particular product from Dell is, you know, about one administrator for 10 petabytes. And that's considered best in class. Well, if you do the math against a zettabyte, that means you need 100,000 storage administrators to run that infrastructure. There are not 100,000 storage administrators in the world, as far as we could tell. And so that was kind of a wake-up call about five years ago that we said, for autonomous driving to even happen, we will have to improve the ratio of people to petabytes just on storage by about three to four orders of magnitude over the next decade. If we don't do that, 
we'll run out of people, even if we can actually land the data. And so, so that began a, you know, a, a journey where we started to think about, well, how would you do that? And the only answer is automation. This idea of sharing the burden between humanity and machines and automation and AIs to basically accomplish the same tasks, but to accomplish them at a much greater scale without necessarily exhausting and overwhelming the human beings involved. And so that, that led us to a lot of the foundational work that this study was really focused on, which is, okay, well, given the need for automation, the uh, unambiguous requirement that as our systems scale, we must introduce automation at an extreme level. Otherwise, we'll run out of people. We will not be able to deliver our outcomes. But what we learned is, you know, look, this is not a trivial task. There is fear of automation. The technology is kind of clunky in some cases. Uh, there is a history of wanting to hold on to certain tasks because I've always done them, not realizing that you may in fact be the bottleneck. And, 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 and the need to change and evolve kind of emerged as, as the fundamental gate between us getting to that future state of, of automation and scale. And, you know, that, that the, the data was fantastic. It really told us that, you know, people understand they need to scale, but they don't know how to do it. And they're somewhat afraid of automation and they're trying to navigate what that change is going to be. And most importantly, it was pretty clear that companies and, and organizations that were open to change, that were embracing the idea of shifting and changing the relationship between people and machines to accomplish tasks, were actually better positioned long-term to actually navigate forward and overcome the kind of scaling obstacles that every industry is going to face as we scale the data ecosystem. So a lot of interesting things in there. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, loads of things are ringing through my head as you're talking there. So so one is this kind of age of convergence I think we're in at the moment. And again, over the last two years, that speed, that scope, that scale of change that we've all been navigating. And we talk a lot, don't we, about organisational agility. It's one of those kind of key words that comes up a lot at the moment. But maybe we talk about less about agility at team level or as individual level. And your point there around fear, I think, is a really interesting one. So some other research I was involved in in the UK kind of like three months ago, it was really interesting how that was reported uh, because it was looking at the role of automation, how it would affect certain job types. And it was a really you know, you know, long report, 140 pages long, something like that. And one subsection on a particular page talked about a particular role that would be adversely affected. All the press picked up on that one paragraph rather than, you know, the new jobs that would be created and, and, and you know, the new benefits, et cetera. So it's really interesting about, you know, the narrative that is portrayed around automation. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting to drill into that a little bit more. So looking at that nervousness, we know the benefits. Uh, we know that, you know, the higher value, higher order work that we can do, that complementary strengths. How do you think we can better overcome the nervousness, the natural resistance to change that we're seeing? And what can leaders do to best address that? Have you got any tips to share in that area? Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, f first of all, you need to be, we need to be sympathetic to the, the the fact that people are nervous. You know, there's a lot of negativity around the incorporation of AI and automation in the world at large, because, you know, the fact of the matter is as the ratio, the relationship between machines and people changes, whether logical machines like AIs or physical machines, it inevitably disrupts the human ecosystem because the humanity doesn't have to do certain things. And those certain things are associated with jobs and roles and identities. And so, so we do understand it is important to be sympathetic to the fact that, you know, there will be change and it may in fact be disruptive. That's kind of the negative perspective, though. The positive perspective is to look at the pattern over the last, oh, I don't know, 200 years that every time we introduce automation at any level, we bring the machines to bear to take, make our life easier, to improve productivity. 
the net result is almost always an expansion of the economy, an expansion of the job roles. And so, you know, I, I give two examples to people to kind of get them comfortable. One is totally non-IT related, but, but most people understand. Uh, if you have a Roomba, for instance, which is a robotic vacuum that a lot of people have these days, that's a robot that is now vacuuming your house. Now, your experience with that Roomba, you, you should understand two things that happened with it if you, if you have one and have experienced this firsthand. The first is having a robot to vacuum your house is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Most people don't want to vacuum their house. And if a robot can do it for me, that's great. But the second thing you learn when you own a robot is that the robot is not completely independent of you. You are now its caretaker. If you don't maintain the Roomba, if you don't fix it when it gets confused, you basically fail to have a robot that's functional. And so that lesson tells us that as we introduce automation, the automation is unlikely to be fully autonomous and independent of us. And in fact, our relationship with that automation will change. And we, in many cases, almost always become the caretaker of the automation. So the second example we give, which is very you know, much more IT specific, is as we started to build out autonomous infrastructures, meaning, you know, private cloud data centers, public cloud data centers, hybrid environments that are fully automated, we started to realize that even if you can fully automate layers of it, there are these caretaker roles that materialize. There's a role called an SRE that was a term that Google coined, and it was basically the people who maintain and make sure and service the autonomous infrastructure. And it's actually one of the highest value roles you could imagine, and it didn't even exist five years ago. And so as we start to look at the evolution going forward, whether it's in you know, the SRE role or in like cybersecurity, there are no cybersecurity jobs anymore that are looking through logs manually and trying to figure out what's going on. But there are huge, almost unfillable jobs because there's so much demand for human beings to act as the human in the loop to look at the advanced analytics that the AIs are doing and try to figure out what the action should be. And so, you know, first step is you have to realize that people need to understand and learn and, and see examples where the incorporation of automation into their world, whether it's their robot or whether it's their data center, almost always result in new demands on the human beings, new capabilities for them. And then the, the third example we give is, you know, generally speaking, if you're in the IT world and you're in a, a modern enterprise, the digital demands on that modern enterprise are growing exponentially. It doesn't really matter what industry you're in. There's just more data being created. There's more things being connected. And if you look at the your budget for human beings and the number of people you can hire and the size of your organization, that is not growing exponentially. And so what you start to realize is as long as you're willing to adapt and incorporate automation, your job is safe because candidly, the automation is there to augment you. It's there to scale you because your role is still important. And so, so we have to have those discussions as opposed to the discussions of automation is going to wipe out a bunch of jobs or automation is going to be a threat to you. It really isn't. The purpose of automation in this day and age is not to replace a human being. It's to augment the human being, to allow us to scale. And in the IT world, very candidly, we just don't have enough trained professionals. We don't have enough people entering that workforce at a time that we actually are exponentially scaling. And so it's actually a very nice symbiotic relationship, but but we need to be sympathetic to the people that are going through the transformation. We need to invest in training. We need to basically help them understand how to, that these are not threatening, that they're actually complementary. And then most importantly, we have to be empathetic as they go on the journey because they're going to be scared and you're going to have to work through and you're going to have to be gradual in the incorporation of the technology so that they can, they can get there. All change is hard. Change that is gradually introduced, that is a positive force, that gives you an amplification of your value, those are all good things. And that's the same methodology we have to use to bring automation into the IT world.
so so true it's almost leadership as, as facilitation well, that was really true as you were discussing that and um, again in the report there's a lot of talk about empathy and empathetic leadership so so important but I also love those examples that you brought to there, bear as well you know having those across different sectors making them relatable to different people I think is hugely important and another example of that I was thinking about is around mental health Again, renewed focus, I think, in many organisations at the moment about well-being. Um, and it's a really, really interesting example with AI. So I was reading about, you know, conversational AI bots, for example. I've done some research on that myself. And now it's kind of saying that um, it's now a safe space. People are feeling more comfortable you know, interacting with conversational AI to say how you really feel before, say, going to a line manager. So, again, it's another way to show how technology can be used in really powerful, meaningful ways and to change that narrative and help take away the fear. Um, so it's really interesting. So, yeah, I love those examples. So great tips there, John. That's brilliant. Thank you. And kind of supporting that as well. I think the role of culture is really huge. You know, if it can be done well, this could be so, so supportive, but also it could be a negation or a barrier to change as well. So I wanted to pick up a particular point in the research. So one, one statement is made which says the following. So while automation will free companies to capitalise on the most innovative available digital technologies and lift the load on staff, research also shows that main barriers to embracing automation are cultural. So I wonder if we can talk about that in a little bit more detail, you know, the role of building a culture that's future ready, embracing of change, and that word again, filled with empathy. So what are you seeing in the market that's doing this very well, you know, within Dell Technologies and with your roles with customers as well? How are you supporting that? Yeah, the, 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 a, cu a couple of observations there. One, you know, technology is not um, fixed. It changes over time. And, and the companies that do well are the ones that embrace it. But embracing a technology by just consuming it is not sufficient. Because the humans that are related to that technology, either building it or using it, also need to develop new skills. And so one of the things that we've found is that from a leadership perspective, if you want to go on this journey, tone at the top matters. You have to decide that you know, the culture of your organization is going to be a culture of evolution and change and, and, and kind of progressive thought about adoption of the best tools and the newest things. Take some risk. You know, at Dell, we have a we have a thing called the Tech Leadership Community that I, I'm responsible for, which is a, a call it our top 500 technologists. We have tens of thousands of technologies. These are our fellows and senior fellows and DEs. And one of the things that we decided to do about three years ago in the tech leadership community is to pivot hard towards what we called future skills. We said, look, if our technology leaders are going to be leaders, they need to have expertise in AI and data management and edge and 5G and new technologies. And we just decided that the characteristic of a tech leader inside of Dell would need to start to incorporate these new technologies into the core of their identity and what they knew and understood. And at first we were concerned because we have a lot of people that aren't doing those things that are great people and are living in kind of the traditional environment. Within three years, the entire population had pivoted. We still have great storage and compute and client people, and those are very important to us, but those same people are now investing their time and energy in learning AI technologies, learning about edge technologies, developing data management skills. And it turns out, you know, you have a fantastic, you know, storage expert who also has a minor in AI and they are exactly the kind of leader we want. They're bridging the work. And so, but, but the reason that happened wasn't by osmosis. It was because we declared at the leadership level that the future of our company was dependent on the skills of our people and the skills of our people needed to change into this direction. And we had structures that encouraged people to do it and made it part of the kind of philosophy and structure of the company. So tone at the top is incredibly important in, in, in setting that direction. 
if you have an organization that quite frankly thrives and, and, and celebrates not changing, um, my advice to you is to leave that organization to go somewhere else because you inevitably are going to fail. On the other hand, if you have a culture that is trying to figure out how to change, but, but doesn't quite know how to do it, that's not bad. It just means that you have to start to encourage people to take, uh, to, to experiment. One of the messages, you know, I was the, the, the chairman of the Cloud Foundry Foundation for five years, which is probably the first at scale open source platform as a service architecture. And when we first started talking about cloud native software development, you know, let's say five, six, seven years ago, I remember doing keynotes in front of huge audiences, 20,000 people at an event and, and that didn't even understand cloud native, were terrified about it. And the one piece of advice that I gave them culturally was your next project, even if you can do it using conventional approaches, it is in your interest to try to build your next application using cloud native paradigms. And the reason for that is even if it's easier to do it the old way, if you do a few of these the new way, you will start to understand them and it will start to become less threatening and it will begin your journey. So the two messages are, you know, tone at the top is incredibly important in terms of what skills you need and what culture you want to create, but also a commitment to actually take some risk with new technologies, to use them, even if the easier path is to not use them. Because once you get hands on keyboard with a new technology, once you have experienced it, you're now an informed participant and you can actually bring that into your culture and you're setting a tone that it's good to experiment and use the new technologies. The easiest path might not be the best path forward. The path that builds your skill sets and transforms your business might be the right path to go. And that requires leadership across the entire organization. Absolutely. I could not agree more strongly with that. I think that's so, so spot on, that encouraging of risk and learning through doing and being hands-on. There's some work by, by John Dewey. Um, that I recommend. I think it's even more resonant, you know, 100 years later than when it was written than it was at the time, actually. But it is all about that experiential and trying and you learn through that process so much. And by sharing that with others, I think the other thing I'd recommend as well is support groups around that. And again, before the pandemic, I, I, was, I was involved in like a round robin uh, of Dell Forum events, for example, and they were amazing. And the community around those as well, which is even stronger now, are fantastic. So you've got that peer-to-peer support and mentoring and going beyond mentoring as well to things like sponsorship and being really active around that and supporting one another. And I've seen that hands-on, you know, many Dell technology events over a number of years, to be frank. It's really, really strong. So, yeah, I just want to put a shout out for that because I think they've been very powerful. I've seen people go through that process and really benefit from it as well. So I love that. And the other point I would like to like focus on now, kind of our third pillar of the conversation, if you will, and bias acknowledged because this is very close to my heart, everything about skills. Now, we've known for some period of time that there's gaps around STEM. And over the pandemic period, that gap has got bigger. You know, we've had things like furlough, for example, different working styles. Um, and the report we've just been talking about with Breakthrough, 69% of respondents are saying they're concerned. They don't feel they have the right skills and necessary skills to progress digital transformation. So it's coming huge as a real, you know, it can be the biggest enabler for change, but not done right, it can be the biggest barrier. So in essence, we're saying there's a shortage of innovation-ready skills that come through from breakthrough. It's holding people back and it's holding organizations back too. So putting all that into the round, what are you believing to be the big skills now that are needed for the future? Now, how can people be more you know, future-ready, if you will? Yeah, I mean, there's a long list, but but the most important thing to recognize is that you know one of the things that's going on in the technology stack as we speak is a shift to uh, what I'll call simpler interfaces, uh, simpler ex- ways to express technology, you know, low code applications, you know, 
you know, some of the AI frameworks are actually do not require you to write a line of code, but you can you can have the tools at your disposal to start thinking through the development of algorithms or the creation of an AI outcome. And and while you still need deep programmers and you still need people who can create technology and you need people with the classical computer science and engineering skills, that's critical. But a lot of the problems we're facing aren't about writing or developing the underlying componentry. They're about using it in the context of your business, trying to connect the business processes, the outcomes you're trying to achieve with your in the real world, with customers, with products, and this integration with the technology. And, and we've done a good job of making the technology easier to interact with. It's not, it doesn't require zero effort, but it isn't, you don't need to be an assembly level programmer anymore to be in the tech industry. <clears throat> and, and so our message to people is, look, in terms of future skills, clearly we do care about you know STEM skills uh, in general, but, but the reality is you can have STEM skills, but not be a computer science person. You can have a thought process to understand how logic works, how you can use the scientific method to describe how you solve a problem. All of those things are becoming much more applicable to using the tech stack because the tech stack is getting easier to use. It's more accessible to you. So our message is, look, we really do care about people who can think, people who can who can understand and conceptualize not just the current environment, but what it needs to look like in the future and how I might change it at a, at a macro level. In fact, you know, and there are areas like, for instance, uh, in zero trust security as a great example. You know, everybody wants to move to zero trust. It's very hard to do. It turns out that the problem isn't the underlying technology, even though there's many things to fix there. To do zero trust properly, the first and most important thing you must do is figure out what your business controls should be. Meaning what behaviors will describe a secure enterprise for you? And that's a technical discussion. That's I would like all my data in Europe to end up in a European data center. I would like only engineers to be able to access my labs. Those business controls don't require you to write a line of code, but you need people who can think through and understand the nature of the business, the nature of humanity, the understanding of the technology. And so for us, it's look, we need big thinkers. We need people who can think logically about change and evolution of the outcomes. We need people who absolutely can build the underlying technology. But the most important skill that we're finding that we absolutely need, and this has been true for quite a while now, in all of those is empathy. And the reason for it is that every one of those tasks I just described is a team sport. And you know, early on, we started to develop a thing called paired programming and test-driven development and all these new concepts in extreme agile and the software development space. We realized very quickly that the best developers had a combination of obviously good software development skills, but they were highly empathetic. In fact, we used to test for empathy. When we hired a software development, we had a formalized test to figure out if they were empathetic and could work in a test-driven paired programming environment. And, and the reason for that was look, the, your, your test is not independent of your development. If you're going to collaborate on solving a problem like developing a zero trust architecture, you're going to have to work with other human beings. And we find that people who have that empathetic kind of kind of bias that understand that it's about a team sport, it's about getting to an outcome together, they actually work better. And when those teams form based on that principle, you actually don't need everybody to have the same skills. You can have a sociologist, a person with an anthropological bent. You can have people who are language experts and you can have people who write code and they can all work together as a team to actually figure out how to get to that outcome. So, you know, our message is, look, the tech industry has a lot of work to do and we're going to need to do that work, not just with people who come from the core software development and engineering skill sets. We're going to just need smart people who want to solve complex problems on a team working together. And more and more, the underlying tech stack is making it possible for those people to be full participants, to not be just advisors from the outside. So, you know, it's really there's a number of dimensions. But I think one of the things I said recently at South by Southwest is the composition of your team 
to solve your next problem will not look anything like the composition of your team five years ago. And you got to think about what does that team look like and where do you find those people? And I'll tell you, the biggest thing for me is that even if you find the right skills, you got to find the right skills and the right people that can work as a team, which brings us back to empathy. So it's a very different talent pool that we're looking at these days. I love that. Honestly, this is a subject I could talk about all day because, you know, I look at a team and the word kind of stem to steam, you know, really appeals to me as a way to kind of framework that. It's something I do with my nonprofit as well. But that kind of tool set of different skills that you can kind of dip into. And so things like you mentioned empathy, absolutely there, curiosity and emotional intelligence, problem solving skills. Um, creativity and teams that are based on that diversity of experience, that diversity of thought. You know, you get better satisfaction, creativity, productivity, innovation. Um, you even reduces the risk of implicit bias, for example, because of that empathy you were talking about. So they really are those innovation-ready skills for the future. Absolutely. And um, in terms of this, so we're talking about the new skills that uh, are key to the future here. Um, but obviously, that support, that scaffold that we can give to people in these teams to be able to get them and to develop these as well. So have you got any tips around that particular area? Again, that facilitation to bring out the very best and support employees embrace these new skill opportunities. Well, well, you know, historically, my advice, and, and this is going to open up a maybe a problem that we have to help have to solve, but but historically, the best way for you to learn those new skills and to kind of develop the right capability set to participate in this new team team culture is learning by osmosis, being around people. And unfortunately, COVID's made that very difficult because we don't really have an environment where you can go into the office and sit next to a better engineer than you and just kind of watch how they work. Um, and so we're doing a lot of very conscious things at Dell. We try to invite people who don't necessarily need to be in the meeting or the Zoom call to join it so they can watch people who are maybe more experienced from them go through this motion. So th- th- that, that you know, th- that's part of that overall chain. Mentoring is kind of the more formal way that you can pass knowledge and learn, learn by osmosis. Take advantage of that. There are tons, every organization, including Dell, has huge mentoring programs. We firmly believe that having this relationship with other people who can help you navigate is important. The learning by osmosis that isn't formalized is problematic during the post-COVID, COVID era, and we need to think about how we do that. So my advice to people is when you're given the opportunity to get involved in something that you are not necessarily a direct participant in the outcome, but you're being invited in to observe how other people are working together and maybe they're working on a more complex project with a more complex team, take advantage of it. Be present because just observing and seeing how other people work will help inform what you're where you need to invest, you'll learn new skills, but more importantly, you'll you'll kind of have something to emulate because emulation is not a bad thing when you're talking about a, you know, a world-class software development team building world-class software in a cloud-native environment. Any person in the software development world should be thrilled to see them work, to be engaged even on the periphery. So, so there's that investment that, that's critically important. And then there's the, you know, the formalized training that, you know, we do a lot of things like, in fact, this year, you know, every year I kind of declare a couple of courses that I want my entire organization to take. This year it's around empathy. It's really about, you know, an empathetic relationships. It's not a technology discussion because I feel like that particular skill I identified is, is something we just need to continuously invest in. And so having that kind of structured plan that in your learning and development plans, whatever company or organization you're in, ask yourself, does that reflect the future skills you need? And if it doesn't, then maybe you should modify it and focus on that broader set of skills. So, so it's formal mentoring, it's the informal mentoring, which is learning by observation. And then it's also the programmatic things that are in almost every organization that are about defining what you should be investing in and what tools you can use to build those skills. But the biggest question isn't to just arbitrarily accept them, but to ask, 
are those the skills that you'll need to participate in these new ecosystems? And if they aren't, then change them. Uh, so there's lots of lots of tools at your disposal. COVID has made it harder because the biggest tool we have is being around other human beings, seeing people better than you do work that you wish you could do, learning and watching other people use new methodologies and new technologies. But it's not impossible. It can be done virtually. It can be done in communities. But it's something that all of us will have to spend a lot more time consciously focusing on because we don't get the benefit of it just magically happening because we're all in the office together. Absolutely. I to- totally echo everything you've said there. And the other thing, just reflecting on that as well, that I would recommend personally, as well is not just about opening up access to these new skill opportunities, like those courses you mentioned, and empathy, I think it's hugely important, but also helping people with skills confidence as well, to, to do the application of that and to use them in different ways. And so one thing I found really effective there is something around metacognition. And I kind of use that metaphor of, of, of the gym, basically, but gym for your brain. Um, and it helps people to identify like learning styles that work well for them so you know I know when I do like a kilo for example I'm quite you know kinetic and wave my arms around I get quite passionate and very like you know energetic with that but people all have learning and different presentational styles it can be quite linear you might want bite-sized chunks it might be very visual but we all do that in different ways um, and again quite often curriculum whether it's at school or whether it's in organizational training can be one path only sometimes. So I think if we can get more personalized training education and help people find out what works for them and they're all equally valuable, I think that could be a great step forward as well to help people not just take up the skills opportunity but have that skills confidence as well to apply them. So that's something that I've found useful in that particular area as well. And I know we're short of time, um, but I'm going to bring in one more question. And again, it's that sweet spot I was talking about just now about STEM to STEAM. So again, putting arts in its broader sense. Um, so we mentioned it a lot today, like empathy, um, again, communication skills, things that used to be called soft. And I think that word really needs reframing and renaming and kind of skills for life, really, I would describe it as. But how can we bring more diversity into STEAM? And again, looking at the study results again, it was saying 80% of study respondents for breakthrough um, are optimistic that the shift to distributed work can create a more inclusive working environment. And again, for our audience, we'll share details of a recent LinkedIn Live that I was on with, with Dell Technologies on this very subject. So what are you seeing, John, here in terms of how we can bring more diversity of experience into these technical fields? Could you share some examples about what you're doing at Dell Tech um, around that area? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a big deal because we, we I, I, we, we pay a lot of attention to this, Adele. We think we're, 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 we're investing and doing the right things, but we're still not where we need to be, which tells us that we have work to do. And I remember talking to a professor at University of Texas, uh, uh, you know, who was helping us on this. And after we got done with one cycle of trying to figure out what to do and what the data showed us, he made a statement to me that was very clear. He said, he said, you will not solve this problem by just setting targets or by setting goals. You must introduce longitudinal programs that basically touch everything that you do. And I'm like, okay, so this is a big deal. This will just not fix itself. We have to consciously invest here. So we started doing that. And, and what we realized is, a couple of things. I'll give you the long list. The, the, the first was, you know, leadership representation. You need to make sure that the people leading the organization reflect the people that are in the organization. And so we have a very conscious effort. I, I'm very proud that I have, you know, fellow level people that are women and underrepresented minorities. I have people that come from different backgrounds. And that's, that, that's a conscious effort that we take. And, you know, we're, we'll never be done. But we're, I at least feel like when people look upstream into our organizations, they start to see people that more resemble them. And if that's not true in your organization, go fix that because that's probably the number one item that, that will prevent you from building a diverse workforce. Does your leadership reflect your population? 
The second, though, is that you, you, you clearly need to have programs where you're, you're looking and understanding, are your structural, are the structural behaviors of your company inadvertently excluding people? And we, we discovered this a long time ago and have fixed it, but it basically said we had a bias towards uh, Western countries is the best way to describe it. You know, we, you know it's almost every tech company in the U.S. at least uh, has, you know, very strong centers in the U.S. where the senior people are. And then, you know, globalized, we have huge teams in China and India and all over the world. And, and it turns out that, that as we actually start to look at the data, what we realized is two things were true. One, we didn't have as many senior people in these senior roles that, that in the per career progression in our emerging markets and our developing markets and our, 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 our international sites. But the other thing that we saw, which was fascinating, is that the general diversity of the populations was better there. There were more women, there were more minorities, there was just a more diverse population, which says, well, this is this is bad because if if we don't have people that they can emulate, if we don't create the career paths there, we're losing the opportunity to create a progression of a highly diverse population into leadership roles. And so we changed that. We got very focused on going out to those sites and convincing people that, hey, you should put your name in for a distinguished member of the technical staff. You should be in the TLC. You, we want you to be part of this. And it actually bent the curve very nicely for Dell. It improved the diversity of our overall population. And then the third thing that you, know, you need to look at is what message is the way you develop and deliver your technology? technology sending. And so we had a program that I led uh, with actually Brian Reeves, our former uh, chief diversity officer, great guys now over at uh, Universal Kronos Group. Uh, Brian and I collaborated to basically focus on inclusive language in our code. And this was spawned by a conversation I had with a friend of mine who, who said, you know, your code speaks. If you're in the software world, the language you use in your software will last longer than you do. <laughs> and it's on your behalf. And it turns out that we were using all kinds of horrible language in our code in technical terms, master, slave, things like whitelist, blacklist. These are not good terms. To most people, you know, from let's say the past, they might not react to that. But if you're trying to build a diverse community and you're using terms that have racial and ethnic and sexist connotations, for God's sake, get them out of there. And so we made a decision to remove them. And, you know, when we put, we didn't just say it, we built tools, we embedded them in our CICD pipeline, in our de development tool chain, we helped people understand what this language meant and why it didn't, it shouldn't be there. And the, the message, you know, I guess there was a spectrum. Some people, yeah, they didn't care. They didn't think it was a problem. Fine. That's okay. But there were a lot of people who said this was a very important message because it says companies like Dell are committed to not just, you know, superficial investment in creating a, an inclusive environment, but it goes all the way down to the language you use in your software. And that is a deep, deep layer. By the way, we're not alone in this. Most of the big tech companies were on that journey with us. That was a big deal over the last several years. We largely have gotten way better as an industry, but, but it's those layers of tone at the top, you know, understanding your population, having longitudinal programs around it, being really committed to it, but also realizing that it isn't just an HR problem. It's a problem that you should bring all the way into your development environment. Is your development environment fostering an inclusive environment? And if it isn't, fix it because you're going to need every brilliant person you can find. And it's actually better if you get brilliant people from lots of different diverse backgrounds because those teams always outperform homogenous, you know, uh, single-minded teams, in, in my opinion, at least. I couldn't agree more. Do you know? Do you know what I was thinking there as well? I love that transparency there about an element that a lot of people wouldn't have seen. 
So you're making the invisible visible about every layer that needs to be addressed in that. I think that's a really tangible example that you don't talk about as often as we should. So that's brilliant. I love that, John. Thank you. That's really, really important. And as we come to a close now, is there anything else you would like to share kind of as a final wrap up? Something we might not cover from the breakthrough report or you know, where are you looking at next? Or what do you maybe we could share like a final thought about what to look out for for that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, well, the first thing is, you know, look, I think we've, we've talked a lot about automation and the need for it. I think everybody understands that now. Yes, it's scary. Yes, we have lots of work to do. Yes, we have to develop new skill sets. I think those are all, you know, hopefully this is helpful for people to understand that we're all working on it. There are tools. You will not find a product in our portfolio that is not aggressively incorporating more automation in it. And we're not doing it for any other purpose than if we don't, we will run out of people as we scale IT outcomes. And so it's an incredibly interesting time to kind of look at the technology stack and look at the ecosystem and realize how much the automation is already there. It's already underpinning what you're doing. And, and it's not a new concept that you can avoid. It's actually there and you might even not even know you're using it, but trust me, it's gonna make your life better. It's gonna allow you to scale. And fundamentally, it's gonna be a critical partner for you as you go forward. So all the you know change in culture, the development of new skills, the broadening the talent base, those are all critical for you to be able to fully exploit that technology, which is gonna be a strategic advantage long-term. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic. It really is this, this combination of complementary partnership, isn't it? Um, going all the way through from the technology, but supported and underpinned in many ways by culture, by skills investment, tech skills, and so all roles, not just tech-facing roles, but those broader STEAM skills we've been talking about as well. So again, when I talk to people, I, I kind of like to present this canvas, all this toolbox, all these different skills you can dip into, and then not only organizations, you know, right through from SME to enterprise, but teams and individuals alike can have that toolbox to work with to feel not just with the access to skills, but with that confidence to apply them as well. For me, that was really resonating from that breakthrough report as such a key area to invest in to support people. And I'm really excited to see you know, the leadership in this area. Like I say, it aligns with my nonprofit so strongly. So I really appreciate that and applaud the work you're doing there. And thank you all for joining us today on Tomorrow's Tech Today. We're going to put some things in the show notes around some of the examples we've shared and particularly around the research. If you can't wait for that, the, re the recommended link is dow.com slash breakthrough. So I look forward to your feedback and all questions as always are most welcome. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tomorrow's Tech Today. If you enjoy what we're doing, please subscribe to us and leave a review. It really means a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and see more behind the scenes video footage on YouTube. Thanks for listening.